our reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 2, 4 through 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for fruit. In the midst of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watered the garden, flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Harivah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris or Tigris. It runs along the east coast of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and there closed it up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her 
to the man. The man said, this, no, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman. For there, for she was taken out of the man. That is why the man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And there they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. May God add a blessing to his most precious eternal work. Well, good morning, folks. As has been mentioned, I'm Alistair. I'm the pastor of Fernie Hill, and it is wonderful to be with you. Now, as I've slowly started getting to know you all as a church over the last few weeks, I've heard stories of your lives and stories of how God has been at work among you as a church family over the years. I've heard especially stories of God's faithfulness to you over the coronavirus pandemic that basically threw the entire world into a time that we couldn't predict, a time of uncertainty that was difficult, of isolation, a time of pain. And for many, the pandemic brought our lives into perspective because pre-COVID, we would run around in the busyness of life, never thinking about the end until we became old, until a loved one died, or until we got that doctor's diagnosis we never wanted. Death and the end seemed far away pre-COVID, but then everyone started to think about their end as COVID struck. Students began losing their friends. People, both young and old, were dying suddenly, even though they were previously healthy and fit. And that uncertainty caused a lot of people to ask the hard questions in life. Why am I here? Is there a plan to my life? Is there a purpose? Because when we look at our lives and we look at our world, we get this feeling inside that something isn't the way it should be. We don't live in that Genesis 1 and 2 world that we've been thinking about. But it doesn't mean we have no answers. We don't live in that perfect world and we'll see why we don't next week. But this morning I want us to look at life as we know it from God's perspective. To see how God intimately got involved in the forming of mankind. And how he created people with a plan and with a purpose. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, why am I here? Why am I alive? What is the purpose to my life? Listen to the words of the God who created you, the God who knows you, the God who loves you. Because I hope that as we leave Genesis 2, we will be comforted to know God's wonderful, abundant provision for his creation. Now, we've already spent time in Genesis 1, but why do we have a retelling of the creation story in Genesis 2? Have you ever wondered that? Well, Genesis 1 focuses on the creation of the the whole world with that repeated pattern, the Lord formed and the Lord filled. And the last thing we saw in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31, if you glance over the page, is that God created mankind, man and woman, in the image of God as the pinnacle of that creation, as Wendy helpfully reminded us earlier on. That means that every single human being is an image bearer of God. 
Every man, woman, and child was created with absolute dignity and worth. Being image bearers of God means that we have the ability to to think and reason, to communicate and love, to create ourselves, and so much more. But at its most basic level, being created in the image of God means that we are in some respects like him. And that image has been broken or distorted by sin, as we'll see next week. But the key thing to remember is that every single human being, no matter how much the image of God is distorted or marred by sin, no matter how much sickness or weakness or any form of disability is in that person's life, every single human being has the status of being an image bearer of God and therefore must be treated with dignity and respect. That's why Christians fight for the rights of all human life from the womb to the tomb because every human life has the fingerprints of God on it because they are his image bearers. But then why do we have this, sec- this retelling of the creation story in Genesis 2? Well, think of Genesis 1 like a bit of a bird's eye view, that big picture overview giving you the headlines of creation. Like those videos your phone creates of the year gone by with the pictures that you took doesn't tell you every single story, but it gives you that overview. And then Genesis 2 zooms right in on Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, the first humans. So we've gone from big picture to focused narrative. And I think Moses wrote it deliberately this way because the creation of the world is magnificent and we should be blown away by that. But the creation of mankind is fundamental to life as we know it. We want to know who we are, why we were made, how our world functions, what rules or structures underpin our lives. And that's why in Genesis 2 we get a glimpse of God's plan for humanity. So we'll see three things in this chapter as we go through it. We see man created, man commanded, and man coupled. Let's dive into this chapter together and see God's wonderful provision for his creation. So the first thing we see is man created in verses 5 to 14. So in Genesis 1, we get this picture of this mighty, all-powerful God who creates the world with his word. He speaks and it happens. But now in Genesis 2, in the zoomed-in focus on the creation of humanity in the Garden of Eden, notice how the language changes. Look at verse 7 with me. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. See, the writer Moses is wanting us to see that God God is not some distant God who doesn't care, but God is intimately involved in creating this world. And you can see the intimacy of even how God is named in this passage. Because Lord is the personal name of God and God is the covenant name of God used throughout the Bible. And those two names aren't often used together, but when they are, they stress that this almighty, all-powerful, magnificent God is intimately involved in the lives of his people. God formed Adam out of the dust. And I wonder if you've ever seen those videos of people making pottery. They start with a lump of clay and... 
throw some water on it and the table spins and somehow, by a miracle, they manage to create something beautiful. I could never do that. But no potter can throw a lump of clay on the table and something just magically appears without them being involved. They need to be invested. They need to get involved in forming of the vase or the bowl. They need to get their hands dirty. And that's the kind of image that we see with God creating mankind. He isn't a distant God who stands far off. But it's the idea that God is right there. Involved in every second as he sculpts the first human being. And notice the difference between Adam and the rest of God's creation. Verse 7 says that God breathed into his, that's Adam's nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living being. There's something different about humanity. Something that sets us apart from the rest of creation Because the life of humanity came directly from God. The word for breath is the same word in the original Hebrew as spirit. So what sets humanity apart from the rest of creation? Well, God created man by putting his breath, his spirit in him. We are not just flesh and blood. We are spiritual beings, people with a spirit and a soul because God breathed life into Adam. And then the story also hones in on this Garden of Eden in verses 8 to 14. Verse 8 tells us that the garden is in Eden. And then verses 10 to 14, we get some geographical markings for a specific place. Now, I don't think God's given us these details so we can go and find the Garden of Eden. It's not there anymore. We can chat about that later on if you want to. But God wants us to see... That he isn't only the God of these big grand things in Genesis 1, but he is the God of small details too. Very specific things. And look at verse 9, for example. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God creates this place that's beautiful. A place where Adam and Eve can live and enjoy the presence of God together. A place where God delights to be with his people. God wants his world to be a beautiful and a practical place. Because Adam and Eve had trees that produced fruit that were good to eat. And there are two trees specifically mentioned at the end of verse 9. Look at those with me. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, those trees come up again in the Bible, but the tree of life symbolizes that humanity live, move, and have their being in God. God is the source of their life. He is the one who breathed life into Adam, and God has provided for them. Because only by eating what God has provided will they have ongoing physical, moral, and spiritual life as they are at peace with God. And then there's the second tree, but we'll see more about that in a moment. The thing I want us to grasp from these first 14 verses is that God has created mankind separate from the rest of creation, given Adam a beautiful landscape and fruit pleasing to the eye that is good for food. God has abundantly provided for his people, has he not? And God wants humanity to have a good life, to enjoy this perfect world that he created and to have pleasure in life. 
God provided abundantly. See, God doesn't just put one tree in the garden that they can eat from. He doesn't just put an apple tree that keeps on producing apples every time they take another one down. But it seems that they can choose from delicious apples, from juicy pears, from pomegranates, from oranges, from cherries, and so on. Fruits that are untainted and perfectly made for Adam and Eve to enjoy. A bit like that scene from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, if you've seen the movie or read the book, when the kids walk into that garden, first of all, and they're told that everything is edible, the sense of excitement they get as every child finds something that they think is best. The creme de la creme, the best of the best, beyond their wildest dreams and imagination. That's nothing compared to the Garden of Eden that God has created for his people. The picture we should have in our minds is an overgrowing mountain of green goodness that God has given Adam and Eve so that they can enjoy being in his presence. So that they can see just how good it is to be connected to God. And to see how true life, how true satisfaction, how true peace and happiness is only found in him and what he provides. I don't know exactly where you all are this morning. I'm not sure of all the situations in a room like this. But I know that there will be people who are trying to find satisfaction and meaning in life from all sorts of things. I know that because I used to do the same thing too. And at one point or another, every single one of us has looked for purpose and peace in the things that we see around us. But I want you to know this morning, and we'll see more about this later on, but I want you to know that the only place where you can find lasting satisfaction, the only place where you can find true peace and understanding of your purpose in life is in this God who created man and woman and provided abundantly for his creation. Man created And the second thing we see is man commanded in verses 15 to 17. Read those verses with me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, there are two commands here. The first is to take care of the land in verse 15, which we've seen before in Genesis 1, where Adam's commanded to rule over the earth and have dominion over it, to take care of God's wonderful creation. See, God created mankind for work. We weren't created to just sit on the couch and do nothing all day. We were designed as creative beings who have a task to do. That's why it's really difficult when you get ill or when you have a chronic illness that puts limitations on what you can and cannot do or even just as you get older and we realize that our bodies don't function the way they used to, we can't do the things that we used to do, it gets frustrating. It's hard when that happens. There's a sense of loss because as Genesis 2 tells us, we were created to work. Now, it was a joy for Adam because sin hadn't yet come into the world and spoiled work and life as we know it. But we are created to work. And the second command is there in verse 16. Read that with me. 
God says you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This command comes with a warning too. God says you can eat from any, any tree in the garden. You're not running out of options anytime soon. I've created enough for you to enjoy, but do not eat from that one tree. Because if you do, you will die. It's as if God is standing there with Adam, looking at this vast, beautiful, bountiful garden, given so that Adam can work, so that he can enjoy creation, so that he can eat from all these different trees. And God says, Adam, all of this is yours to enjoy. Take and eat, work and rest. Sit back and look at the beauty that I have made for you, but do not touch that one tree. That's the one part of the garden that's off limits. Why? Surely having the knowledge of of good and evil, the comprehension of good and evil, having the ability to discern what is morally right and wrong is good, isn't it? Well, the knowledge here is not merely intellectual, but it's about experiencing the decision between two alternatives. This tree represents moral autonomy. It means that Adam has the ability to choose for himself whether he lives to the fullness of life and contentment in God's creation as he was created to in God's perfect presence or he chooses to go his own way to say, no God, I don't want to be like you or be with you. Now maybe you're like me and you're thinking, why on earth would God put that tree there? Obviously Adam's going to take from it one day. Obviously he's going to eat. Well, as I've wrestled with this over the years, I think there are at least two reasons why God put this tree there. Firstly, God wants Adam and Eve to voluntarily and totally trust and obey him. This tree is a bit like a constant invitation for Adam and Eve to trust God rather than themselves. As Wendy said, God doesn't want a robot who has no choice whether or not to obey God, but God wants a peaceful relationship where humanity makes the conscious and active decision to trust and obey God and for that relationship to grow and flourish. God's rule is good for mankind. God's commandments that he gives us are good. He created us and he knows what is best for us. Just like a potter knows the best temperature and environment he needs to mold the clay in to be at its best. Just like a potter knows how the perfect temperature for the bowl to be baked at so that it doesn't crack. One degree off and it breaks, it shatters. One slight change and all of creation is ruined. The creator knows what's best for his creation and God as the grand creator, he knows what is needed. He knows what is best for mankind to flourish. And secondly, this tree shows us the bigger picture of how God relates to his people throughout the whole Bible, through covenants. Now, a covenant is a promise made between two people or two groups where they agree on promises, stipulations, privileges, and responsibilities to one another. In the Bible, God promises his people something, and if they trust and obey God and remain faithful to him, then God will bless them and make them fruitful. But if they refuse to obey and trust in God, then they will be cursed and suffer the consequences of their rebellion. 
And each covenant throughout the, throughout the Bible comes with a sign. The most famous one is probably the rainbow, as we'll see in Genesis 8 after the flood, where God promised never to flood the earth again. And as a sign, so that everyone would remember that promise, God put a rainbow. Well, here the sign of the covenant is the tree. God says, Adam, everything in this garden is yours to enjoy except that tree because you will die if you eat from it. Now that death, as we'll see in Genesis 3, is both physical and spiritual. Physical because Adam and Eve will be cut off from the tree of life, cut off from the God who is the source of their life, cut off from God altogether. And spiritual death because of the entrance into sin, the entrance of sin into the world that would plague every single human heart and put us all under the curse of sin and separation from God until a savior would come. This command and warning from God should be like a warning sign on the road for Adam. You know those ones that flash orange at you as you're warning you about a crash or a flood that's coming up ahead. It's a warning sign that says you're on a dangerous path. You need to turn around and go no further. Adam's been warned. There's plenty of goodness to enjoy. Just not that one tree because like gangrene, it will spread and have devastating effects, not only for Adam and Eve, but for every single human being from then until the end of time. Now, I often hear people say that they think Christianity in the Bible seems restrictive because of the things the Bible says. It's not wise for God's people to do or to engage with. But just as God does here with Adam, the Bible tells us how to live the way God created us to live so that we can live in harmony with him. As your creator, he knows what is best for you. God isn't a rule master in the sky who enjoys dishing out rules and judgment for fun, but he is a loving father who says, listen to me. I know you. I love you. I created you. And he wants you to live in harmony with him. So man is created and man is commanded. And the third thing we see in verses 18 to 25 is that man is coupled. So in verse 18, read it with me. God says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now this is the first time in the Bible God sees something and says that it is not good. Not that being alone makes Adam any less human, but because Adam was created for community. Remember, we thought about in our first sermon in this series, God is Trinity who has always existed in perfect communion. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the creation of the world was an overflow of that perfect communion. That's why as human beings, we have the natural desire to be in and around people, to have friendships and family close by, to be a church family who come together because we were created for community. Adam was never meant to be alone in a marital status or in a social sense either. And God forms the animals from the ground in verse 19, but they're they're not like Adam. There's a difference. They aren't That an adequate helper wasn't found for him because they don't have the breath of life in them like Adam does. 
But each animal is brought before Adam and he names them, which is a sign of his authority and rule over them. But we get the same problem again in verse 20. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. Of all that God created, Adam had no counterpart. He had no person who was like him, who could help him in the role of his caring for and working in the Garden of Eden. Now the word helper in no way means inferior. Women are of equal value, dignity and worth as men. As God himself said in Genesis 1 verse 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. The helper language used to describe Eve doesn't mean that she's a servant who sits at Adam's feet and does everything that he needs or wants. But it means that she's a co-worker, someone who comes alongside him as they work together. The word helper is actually used most in the Old Testament to describe God's relationship to the nation of Israel. Adam needs a helper, and so in verse 21 it says, So the Lord caused, Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and he brought her to him, to the man. Now it's significant that God creates Eve from Adam's rib. Eve was not taken from Adam's head that she could rule over him. Eve was not taken from Adam's foot that he could oppress her and, and look down on her. But Eve was created from Adam's side. So that together, standing side by side, they serve the Lord in the different ways and with different gifts that God has given them. Or as one author says, Eve was taken from Adam's side that she might be his equal, from under his arm that she might be protected by him, near his heart that he might cherish and love her. And then here we get the first wedding ceremony of the Bible. God, like a father, walks Eve down the aisle and presents her to Adam and he cannot contain himself. But in verse 23, he bursts into a song. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she's been taken out of man. Now, three things I want us to briefly think about this first wonderful wedding ceremony and creation of Adam and Eve. Firstly, notice their sameness. In Eve, Adam sees himself. She is flesh and bone, likewise made in the image of God, like Adam made as the pinnacle of creation, which is why he burst into the first love song of Scripture. Finally, he says, a helper has been found, a companion suitable for me who can work alongside me. Loneliness is no longer a problem. Adam and Eve are the same. But secondly, notice their difference. Practically speaking, Adam in Genesis 1 has been given the role of leader. He is the head who's responsible for tending to and protecting the garden. But he needs a helper. There were things, evidently, that Adam wasn't able to do. And so the Lord created Eve of no less worth, but given different skills and gifts to help or to complement Adam. Man and woman 
were created perfectly to complement each other with different attributes and skills that should be celebrated. Which is why it's so important that here in church, men and women serve alongside one another and work together for the glory of God and the upbuilding of his kingdom. And then physically speaking, God created man and woman, two compatible sexes, who were commanded in Genesis 1 verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And the act of That act of procreation is only possible between one man and one woman. I realize that we live in a world that fights against that kind of teaching. And I realize that I stand before a congregation where this isn't some theoretical conversation. But this is something that you're dealing with every single day. You have loved ones who disagree with you on this. And I know that is hard. Even in just the short time I've been here at this church, I've had conversations about this stuff, and I know it isn't easy. This is God's plan, that humanity should thrive together as one man and one woman joined together, work together as equals to fulfill the role that God has given them. We don't have time to go further into this now, but please come and speak to me afterwards if you have any questions or you want to chat about this. My card is also in the foyer if you want to speak. I'd love to grab a coffee with you. Because this is a massive topic, and we need to think about it well. We need to think about how to care for and love our loved ones well. And we want to help you in any way we can as a church. But then thirdly, notice their union. Now, as I've said, this is the first marriage in the Bible, which is why verse 24 says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is the blueprint of marriage that humanity was created with. And that was given to us by our creator who ultimately knows what is best for us. Marriage is is to be between one man and one woman. And sex is a good gift from God that is to be enjoyed within the covenant relationship of marriage. That's, why the, that's what the Bible says. This isn't just Alistair's opinion. This isn't just Fernie Hill's opinion, but the creator of the universe, the one who knows you, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, says that marriage is between one man and one woman. And sex is a good gift from him to be enjoyed within the covenant relationship of marriage. Now again, I know that this runs completely contrary to what our world says. They say that none of this matters. We live in a world of sexual revolution where the mantra is that it doesn't matter who you sleep with as long as you're happy. Or the gender doesn't matter and you can choose what you want to be. Friends, God created the world with a plan with order, and he created marriage. And it is good for us to follow his plan. I realize that this will be hard for some of you. Some of you are here, and maybe you're not married, and you want to be, and you find that hard. Or maybe you have been in a marriage that was abusive, and you had to get out of that. Or maybe you're in a marriage now and it's difficult and you you think, how can this be God's good plan? Or maybe you're here and you you haven't abstained from sex before marriage. 
Currently in the UK, the average person loses their virginity at the age of 18. If that's you, I'm not standing here as a judge. But I'm standing here as a friend. We're not here as a church to judge you, but to point you to Jesus. And to point you to the grace and forgiveness that is found in him. Christians should be at the forefront of defending this conservative view of marriage, gender and sexuality. Because it is given to us as a foreshadow of the great marriage between the ultimate bridegroom and his church. The New Testament describes Jesus as the great bridegroom who loves his bride, the church. He loves us so much that he went to die on a cross for us so that all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our mistakes were nailed to a cross and dealt with. As the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, that we'll sing in a moment says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath brought me life. I know that it is finished. Brothers and sisters, we come before a God who has provided abundantly for his creation. He has created, commanded and coupled Adam and Eve. And he has a plan set from the very beginning of scripture that he calls us to follow. And if we've disobeyed God in any of those areas in the past. If you're sitting here and the devil is reminding you of all the things you've done in your life. If he's telling you you're worthless and you have no place here. Do not listen to him. But instead look at the cross. Listen to the words of your glorious bridegroom who laying down his life for you said, it is finished. You are free and you can be made right with God. If you are a Christian here this morning, sin has no more claim on your life because Jesus paid it all. This morning we started thinking about the realization that COVID caused many people to think about the big questions in life. Why am I here? Is there a plan to this chaos that we know is life on earth? Well, God has a plan for his creation. And we've looked at some very countercultural truths. And if you have any questions, please do not run away. I would love to chat to you, to pray with you, grab anyone afterwards. We would love to help you. But the thing I want you to remember is that this is God's wonderful, abundant provision for his creation. This is the plan that he put in place that we should follow until that glorious, glorious day where we will see our bridegroom face to face. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that we are not perfect. We have sinned against you in our lives and we sin every single day. Father, would you stop the devil in his tracks if he is trying to distract us from you? 
and help us cling to the cross. That place where love and mercy meet. Where the perfect Lamb of God was sacrificed. And he took away the sins of all those who call on him. Father, we thank you for your great plan of salvation. Jesus, we thank you that you set your face like flint to the cross. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see the truth. That once we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But now, by the grace of God, we can be alive to what Jesus has done for us. Help us to grasp the immensity of the gospel today and help us to live in a way that glorifies you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.